You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. So we are jumping into Nehemiah chapter 2, and let me start with this. How many of you are in a season right now? You've got a pivot to make in your life. Things have changed. You've got a big decision to make. You're looking at the future, trying to figure out how you're going to prepare for it. Maybe you're having kids. Maybe you're getting married. Maybe the kids are leaving home. Maybe you've just moved here from another city or another state. So what do you do when you are faced with impending changes, struggles, challenges? We touched on this last week when we began the book of Nehemiah. How do you find God's will in the major categories of your life? The answer, you pray and then you plan. You need to pray. God, what do you want me to do now? Where do you want me to go? And then you plan when you feel like you've got the answer. Okay, how am I going to obey that? How am I going to fulfill that? Pray and plan. They go together. And really, the whole book of Nehemiah is a case study on how you pray and plan. How do you find God's will and then walk in it? That's the case study. And the story of Nehemiah is this. He is a Jewish man, but he is far from home. He is with some of God's people, but they have been taken hostage. They've been slaves in the Persian Empire. Nehemiah is now in the capital city of the Persian Empire. The city is called Susa. He is 850 miles away from his home country of Israel. And he gets reports. We saw this last week. He gets reports that in his home city of Jerusalem, the walls are broken. The gates are burned. And as a result, his heart is broken Because the country he loves is in decline. The city that he loves is destroyed. Their version of the church, the temple, is closed. And so God's people couldn't gather together as a family there. They couldn't worship God freely there. So what does he do? He prays and he plans. So between chapters 1 and 2, we're told that he spends three to four months Praying, fasting, journaling. He's like, God, I don't like what's happening. Things need to change, but I'm not sure what to do about it. What is my part in it? Know this, that when we pray and plan, we're asking God, what is my part in your purpose? When you pray, it's like, God, what do you have to say to me? What do you want me to do so that I can be a bigger part of your bigger purpose of advancing your cause and your kingdom? This is going to be a leadership lesson. Nehemiah is one of the great leadership books in the Bible, and I think it's really timely because as we look into our future, we ask, what's going to happen politically? What's going to happen economically? What's going to happen culturally? Because right now, It looks very concerning. I mean, how many of you, when you look into where you think our society is headed, you think, it looks great. Well, if that's you, we need some of your medication. (laughs) And the question is, 
how do you hear from God? How do we plan for ourselves and our families, our church, our businesses, our future? Now, we can't control everything, but we can worship the God who can control everything. So this is a case study in leadership, and the first principle is this. God uses our struggles, our hardship for his glory. We saw last week that Nehemiah is really struggling. Again, he's in Persia. He wants to be in his home country of Israel. He's in the city of Susa. He wants to be in Jerusalem. He's working for a demonic, ungodly king. He wants to be serving the king of kings. He's heartbroken. He's weeping. He's frustrated. How many of you right now, looking at our culture, looking at our nation, you're a little heartbroken and frustrated? You're like, you know what? This isn't working and something needs to change. It's just a miserable season that he's in. But then ultimately, we see here that God's going to use this for his glory as he works through Nehemiah. And this is what God's going to do. He's going to take Nehemiah from Susa to Jerusalem, from Persia to Israel. God is going to take him from misery to ministry. And sometimes when you're frustrated, sometimes when you're heartbroken, sometimes when you're sick of it, that's the beginning of your calling. So don't just get discouraged when you're experiencing struggles. Take it to the Lord. That's your opportunity to turn it into ministry. So here's chapter 2, how he begins. In the month of Nisan, which is kind of the March-April time frame for us, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, we know exactly when that is. It is 444 B.C. When wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. So Nehemiah works for the king. We saw at the end of chapter 1, he is the cupbearer to the king. Now, being cupbearer to the king is a rough job. There were constant attempts to kill the king. So before the king would drink any wine, Nehemiah would drink it. That's his job. And if he died, the king wouldn't drink it. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. And Nehemiah is working for this demonic, horrible, ungodly king in his nation, really empire, that has overtaken and enslaved its people. Nehemiah is a slave. He's working for the government. And this is not where he wants to be. It's not what he wants to be doing. And he comes before the king, and it says this. I had not been sad in his presence before. Nehemiah could not contain his emotion. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. He was very afraid because here's their culture. When you come before the king, you need to be happy, especially if the king is with the queen, which we'll see in just a moment he is. If you come before the king and it seems like you don't want to be there, you're disinterested, you're unhappy, you're not joyful, that's disrespecting the king. And now you're disrespecting the king in front of the queen. And this guy rules and reigns like a god. He's a bit of a thug. 
To get to the throne, he killed his brother, who was the rightful heir to the throne. He put down two insurrections against him. He's going to rule for 40 years with an iron fist. He's a bit of a mob boss. And the rule is you cannot be happy in it. You cannot be unhappy in his presence. If you're unhappy, he's not happy. And he's not happy to keep you. He may not even be happy to spare your life. How many of you are in a season? You've had something so overwhelming, so burdensome, so frustrating, so concerning that you you can't pretend that you're okay. Somebody asks you, are you okay? No, I'm not. I, I can't hide it. It's showing on my face because it's wearing on my soul. That's where he's at. And here's why he's afraid. For the king, you are only supposed to be a burden lifter, not a burden giver. You see, there are two kinds of people. There are people who are burden lifters, and there are people who are burden givers. How do you know the difference? Well, if a burden lifter is coming towards you, you approach them. If a burden giver is coming towards you, you go somewhere else. When it comes to being in the king's presence... You're only supposed to be a burden lifter, never a burden giver. Look, this is a one-way relationship. You lift the burdens of the king. You never bring burdens to the king. This could be disrespectful. This could cost Nehemiah his life, if, but he's willing to serve God, and he's hoping that his life will be spared so he can serve God. Next verse. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I pray to the God of heaven. We said last week that upon hearing the reports of what's taking place in Jerusalem 850 miles away, he prays for maybe three to four months. He's saying, God, Let me leave my job. Let me have the king's blessing. Let me go from Persia to Israel. Let me go from serving this evil king to serving the king of kings. I'm praying for a change. I'm planning for a change. Let the king allow me for a change. His moment comes. What does he do? He prays again. You're going to see this throughout the whole book. Nehemiah prays a lot. He plans a lot. But look, if you've already prayed for something for three or four months and the king asks, what do you want? You have your opportunity. Why would you stop and pray again? Because you've not only prepared the message, you also need to prepare the messenger yourself. He knows what he wants to ask. But he needs to stop and pray to make sure that what he says is the right thing with the right tone, using the right words in the right way. And he wants to make sure it's the right time. And that the king would understand and interpret it the right way. How many of us are praying? Well, how many of us are not praying? You have an excuse. You're like... Lord, I have so much to do. I just don't have time for you. He's like, well, maybe if you started with me, 
I would have taken some of those things off your list. I would have unburdened you some. And I think Nehemiah is like, okay, Lord, I I know what I want to say. I pray that I do it right. And I pray that the king's ears are open and receptive. By the way, these are all leadership principles. Nehemiah, again, is a book on leadership. If you're a parent, you're a leader. If you're serving in ministry, you're a leader. If you have management responsibilities at work, you're a leader. If you're a coach, you're a leader. If you're a big brother or sister, you're a leader. So leadership principle number two, character matters. Here's the next verse. I answer the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Here's what he's saying. If I have demonstrated character and earned your trust, I would like to make the first ever request in our relationship of you, king. You see, the problem is this. If you ask all the time, you're going to wear out your welcome for when you really need something. He's probably never asked the king for anything in his entire life. This is a one-way relationship. It's like the king says, do this, do this, do this. Nehemiah would never show up to work and say, well, you know what? I got a few requests to make too, bud. This is the first time he's ever asked for anything. And what he says is, king, I'm for you, but I'm going to make a request of you. If I have found favor in your sight, and what he's saying is, King, you know my character. See, do you think you just get to be cupbearer to the king? I mean, you're not going to find this on a job search. You're not going to go to Monster or Indeed, now hiring cupbearer to the king. If you're good at drinking wine and dying, We have a job for you. This is not a job you apply for. This is a job you're invited into after you've proven yourself through years of character and and faithful service because you can now be in the king's house. You're going to be in the king's presence, the queen's presence. You're going to be welcoming foreign dignitaries. What Nehemiah is saying to the king is this. I've been your slave my whole life. I've served faithfully. I've done a good job. If you trust my character, I want to make a request. I want to leave this place and go to Jerusalem. I want to stop working for you and start working for the King of Kings. I have another project that I've been praying for and planning for. You'll see in a moment that he gets that answered. Because, yeah, he's speaking to the king. But Nehemiah has been praying to the king of kings who has authority over the human king. And sometimes the king of kings will work through the ungodly human king. The next principle is that God's vision for you requires God's provision on you. So next verse. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him. See, I told you they were together. Ask me. How long will your journey take and when will you be back? It pleased the king to send me, next verse, so I set a time. 
Now, as you read the book, he's asking for 12 years off. How many of you, if you walked into your boss's office and he's like, well, what do you need? I need some time off. Well, how long do you need? 12 years. He's like, well, there's the door. You can take off the rest of your life. In addition, Nehemiah has to make this journey from one city in one country to an entirely different city in another country. And this journey could take months. So I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates? That's going to be an area that he's going to travel through so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. This is a big request of a slave to make to a king. He's saying, I'm asking you, king, to personally fund the rebuilding of my city, the rebuilding of the temple so that we can worship God. You know, the one thing that your nation 141 years ago stopped us doing by invading us and destroying us. I'm asking you to undo everything that your nation has been about for 141 years. And when I get there, I'm going to need a place to live. So if I can get your credit card to Lowe's, that way I can have a nice, safe, secure home. That seems like an incredible request. This is a lot. So let me say, you don't make this request unless you've heard from God or you're off your rocker. That's it. Those are your only two choices. This is a big request. The only way you make a request this big is he was fasting and praying for three to four months. He's like, okay, God, you want me to go to the king and ask that? I'm trusting you. And what happens? And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. What Nehemiah is doing here. Some people might look at this and say, okay, yeah, he's all about the money. He's all about the building. He's all about the facilities. He's all about the numbers. No, 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 no. What he's trying to do is get the house of the Lord open so that God's family could worship there. The goal is not to have the best building. The goal is to have a place for God's family. Ministry is very spiritual, but it's also very practical. I mean, think about it. There are salaries. <coughs> there are buildings to maintain. There are utilities. How many of you want toilet paper when you go to the bathroom? I mean, ministry is spiritual, but it's also very practical. Leadership principle number four, keep trusting God. He's got you. The last part of verse eight again, and then into verse nine. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. He says, we got miracles because God does miracles. That's what he's saying. 
And what he's talking about, when he, when he says about the hand of God being on me, he's talking about the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The language of the Bible is the Holy Spirit comes from the Father on us, and it's like a hand to come and protect us. You know, how many of you are dads? What does your hand do for your child? Does your hand protect your child? Uh, don't go there. Don't go near the road. Does your hand provide for your child? Here, you need this. Does your hand direct your child? Here, take mine. Follow me. Does your hand bless your child? Let me bless you. When he says the hand of God is upon him, that's the presence, person, power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Father is in heaven and he sends the Holy Spirit to place his hand on Nehemiah in order to protect him, guide him, lead him, provide for him, bless him. And what happens is this. When wonderful, miraculous, supernatural things happen, Nehemiah gives credit to God. He doesn't say, man, I nailed that one. <laughs> what a great plan I came up with. What he says is the gracious hand of my God was on me. God showed up. Here's the next thing you need to know. This is the next principle. When God acts, Satan reacts. Here's the next verse. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Sanballat and Tobiah, these guys are terrible. They appear here in the beginning of the book. They're throughout the book. They're there at the end of the book. They're always an enemy, always a problem. They are critics. They are antagonists. They are opponents. Sanballat and Tobiah heard that God had done a miracle. They were angry that somebody sought the welfare of the people of Israel. There are some people who don't want our country to succeed, both inside the country and outside the country. There are some people who don't want the churches, our churches, to succeed. And when they hear that things are going good, that's bad for them. These two men became the face of organized opposition for Nehemiah for his entire ministry. This is the beginning of spiritual warfare in this book because at this point, God acts and Satan reacts. Everything that God builds, Satan tries to break. Everything God creates, Satan tries to counterfeit. Every time you're trying to advance the cause of God, someone is trying to stop you from advancing the cause of God. You know why? Because you are advancing into enemy territory. And Nehemiah is going to be attacked from the beginning to the end of this book. And God's people are going to get attacked because they're with Nehemiah. They're following his lead on this mission. Another principle is this. You can't have a testimony without a test. Now, Nehemiah was told by God... Go work on that city, open up the church, their version of the temple. Love and serve people, get them together so I can send my Holy Spirit to help them and heal them so they can worship me. And immediately, Nehemiah faces opposition, but he's like, I will not 
retreat. I will not surrender. I will not apologize. I am called. He's got to be courageous to persevere. And it seems like every single calling on us, on our lives, there's going to be some sort of opposition and testing. But your courage does not come from your own strength. Your courage does not come from your own toughness or your own wisdom. Your courage comes from your calling because if God has placed a call in your life and God says go forward, you're like, okay, I've got no choice. There are going to be times that you're afraid. But if you're called, you go forward anyways. In addition, when you are called by God to do something, love this spouse, raise these kids, serve in this way, work this job, help this ministry, whatever you're called to, it may be hard. There will probably be some obstacles, but God will get you through and you will have a testimony at the end. So how do you know? When you wake up tomorrow and you're like, okay, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I living like I'm supposed to be living? Look, Nehemiah knows what he's supposed to do. But let me just ask you this. Does he know whether or not he will succeed or fail? No. Does he know whether he'll live or die? No. But he knows this. He knows what he's supposed to do. The story continues. I went to Jerusalem. And after staying three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate. Yeah, that's like the landfill. Examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. He's like, things were so beat up, broken down, and the ruins were so prevalent, I couldn't even get my horse to run through it. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Nehemiah is like, we've got a problem. God sent me here to lead the solution. We are going to rebuild the church. We are going to worship God. We are going to enjoy life together. We are going to be God's people. I know you're discouraged. I know you're frustrated. I know you're depressed. But God is going to do something and he's going to use us to be a part of it. So it was going bad. Then it was going good. And it's going good. Now it's going to go bad. 
Welcome to life on earth. And here comes the bad. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, we've already seen them, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. So now they've recruited a third guy, another antagonist. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? This is now a political attack on religious freedom. Governments tend to hate God because governments think they are God. Governments don't want you to be loyal to someone or something beyond the government. And so here, God's people want to gather in worship, and the governments around them want to stop it because they want loyalty to the government, not to God. So what they are trying to do is suppress and stop religious freedom. Does this still happen in the world? Oh, yes, it does. Look, as God's people... We don't expect people who aren't God's people to live as God's people. But we want the freedom to live as God's people. Like here's how we raise our kids. This is how we pay our bills. This is how we do life. You can disagree with us. That's okay. You do your own thing. But this is not how God has called us to do it. And what do they do? They attack Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the leader. You're going to see throughout the book, if you're going to call the shots, you also got to take the shots. That's leadership. They ask him, are you rebelling against the king? They're accusing him of criminal behavior, like he's a terrorist. And the men who are saying this, they are governmental leaders. They have a lot of power. They have a lot of money. They are dangerous. And what happens when a negative narrative is set all information is filtered through that negative narrative. And so from this point forward in the book of Nehemiah, everything he says and does is going to be weaponized through that negative narrative. You know they did the same thing to the Lord Jesus. When Jesus comes, crowds of people gather to him. His enemies and critics, they don't have that. You don't read this in the Bible. Thousands came to hear his critics and children gathered around the enemies of Jesus. You don't see that. Because what happens is God creates a crowd and then Satan comes and attacks the leader and tries to pull away their followers. God here is assembling his people. And then the enemies are going to attack Nehemiah. Again, they did this to Jesus. Jesus says, I'm God. No, you're a liar. And so is your mom. They tag his mom into this negative narrative. Your mom was so unfaithful, you don't even know who your dad is. Well, I healed someone. Yeah, but you healed on a Sabbath. That was a sin. You broke the law. You did it the wrong way. He heals another person. Yeah, by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the devil, he healed them. They're saying Jesus is a liar, that Jesus is a sinner, that Jesus is demon-possessed. Last verse, verse 20. I answer them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, he's speaking to those three antagonists, you have no share in Jerusalem 
or any claim or historic right to it. Nehemiah is like, you know why you hate me? Because you hate God. So what he's saying is this. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to fight with you. Because God has called me to some things, to get some things done. That means you don't have time for your critics. You don't have time for your enemies. You don't have energy to waste on people who are trying to dissuade you from walking in the will of God. You don't need to hate them. You don't attack them. Maybe you need to ignore them. Ultimately, Nehemiah doesn't say, let's, let's just hug it out. Let's just compromise, shall we? He says, I've got to be about the work of the Lord. And if you're not with me, you're against me. And that means you're against God. And I would even add this. If you're not with God's word, if you're not living here, you're not living according to God, you're living against God. Now, that's all of us. But what's interesting here is that Nehemiah is praying and planning to be part of God's bigger plan, and he has no idea how big God's plan is. You see, this is just part of the entire storyline of the Bible. The reason God has Nehemiah work on Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls, the gates, the city, the temple, is because King Jesus is ultimately coming to Jerusalem to fulfill God's plan of saving his people. And the Lord Jesus lives and dies in Israel. Just outside of the walls of Jerusalem is where he was crucified and buried. And in so doing, he fulfills everything that was foreshadowed in the temple. So the temple was the presence of God. But it was just a placeholder until Jesus comes because he is the presence of God. At the temple, the priest would offer a sacrifice. And Jesus comes as our great high priest to offer himself as a sacrifice. And today, we no longer have to go to a place as our headquarters we go to a person who is our head. And ultimately, we are in the same season as Nehemiah saying, God, you've got a big purpose. I'm praying and planning about my part. Lord, tell me what you want me to do, or what you want me to give, and let me make a plan to be a part of your bigger purpose. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.